they're trained to be compliant with uh, uh, protocols and so on. And now the protocols are all dictated by industry. They're dictated, they're dictated by doctors who are heavily paid by industry. Anyone in America who isn't worried about this, who thinks this is a spectator sport, had better start looking at what's happening in Canada and worse, Australia and Europe. I mean, it's it's astounding. It's very distressing. And these these places do not have a constitution like we have that protects us to some degree. Love and light, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of El Podcast, the greatest virtual happy hour in the world. So I want to say cheers to all of you. And um, uh, wherever you are, there's always happy hour. I am your host, Kai Primo, and uh, I'm joined by El Capitan, Jesse Wright. Uh, we always want to thank you guys for listening and watching. And if you've just discovered us and are not yet subscribed, please subscribe and also find us on Spotify so you never miss an upload from a podcast. We're very excited about today's episode. Um, I believe it takes a tremendous amount of courage to speak about this topic. And uh, joining us today, our guest is Dr. Robert Yoho. He spent three decades as a cosmetic surgeon after a career as an ER physician. Currently, Dr. Yoho is retired from the medical profession and focuses his energy on writing and whistleblowing in the healthcare industry. He is the author of the books Butchered by Healthcare, Hormone Secrets, and his latest book, Cassandra's Memo, COVID and the Global Psychopath. So thank you so much for joining us, Robert, and cheers. Like, this is incredible. It's my pleasure, Kai. Thanks for uh, exposing me to your audience. And uh, we're all uh, doctors here. We can go by first names if you want. Uh, you know, we're colleagues. And let me just do my 10-second disclaimer. This is not medical care. If you have a problem, you have to see a licensed physician and uh, use any information here at your own risk. <clears throat> Okay, thank thank you so much for that. Let's get into it. Um, in your book, Cassandra's Memo, you say, and I quote, the two least profitable versions of humanity are dead people and healthy people. The most profitable version is an unhealthy person, end quote. Uh, so this quote from your book, I feel, is quite a powerful way to open this podcast, Um how did we go from do no harm to health for profit? <laughs> Kai, I, I'm, I'm more uh, descriptive rather than uh, uh, philosophical. So, you know, how, how it all happened is the, the money just became so large and we've completely corrupted our healthcare industry to the point where 50% of what we do is either ineffective or uh, actually harmful. And that's not an exaggeration. It's not anything that's controversial. Many, many people write about that. It's in the published literature. Um, so the, uh, I mean, we spend double what any other country spends on healthcare. Uh, we spend 20% uh, of our gross domestic products. Singapore gets by with less than 5%. And the other developed countries are around 10%. So uh, it's $4 trillion here. Uh, it's, it's just, it's an outrage. And it's, Warren Buffett says said it's something to the effect that it's the tapeworm that's eating the American economy. 
It's a crazy scene. And, you know, I can go over all these different areas that are have been corrupted uh, by the money. I mean, people people are just, you know, the industry has co-opted the standards and it has bought off the doctors. And the doctors are not a courageous bunch uh, to begin with. So that's that's kind of yeah. the thing in a nutshell. I'd love to. So let's say for those of us who are maybe too busy to understand the healthcare system and we're kind of just, you know, if you, if you get sick or whatever, you go to the doctor and this is just how it works and you pay this much and et cetera. So for those of us who, who doesn't really know the inner workings and I'm one of those people, um, can you break down the components of this machine, you know, and, and why sick people are need needed to to feed this machine like can you just break down the components from insurance companies to whatever and how it all works so i listed uh, my second chapter in butchered by healthcare i listed the the worst problems in healthcare and i put insurance at the top of the list because um we you know everyone thinks that health insurance protects us from disasters just like fire insurance but the truth is that um the insurance companies just produce an insanity of waste, wastefulness. They're all the money, virtually all the money in the United States, including Medicare and the private insurances are run through the insurance companies before they get dollar one goes to the patients or the doctors or the healthcare system. And it's just an insanity of wastefulness there. It's the companies extract fully one fifth, $20 out of every hundred for their uh, administration and profits. And they're quite profitable and only 75 to 80 percent remains for everyone else so they they all have bloated overheads they they consume just a, a, at least 25 percent for their own internal expenses so it's an it's an outrage um the hospitals are another gloomy story and uh the uh, you know we think that they're uh, idealistic and they're trying to get people better, but the truth is that most of the most of these corporations are ruthless pirates that are looting the patients who trust them. These companies bully or pay physicians to cooperate with their agendas, and hospital costs are almost a third, roughly a third. It might be more of the total U.S. healthcare bill. And they spend 10 to 15% of their receipts just on coding collections and other methods to whip money out of the insurance companies. The third worst thing is probably the drugs and medical devices. And the pharmaceutical companies are the most corrupt industry in history, as judged by their settlements with U.S. federal prosecutors. Um, they purposefully falsify the FDA studies and the FDA cooperates with them because the FDA has about half of their revenues come straight from the drug companies during the patent process. And uh, many, many drugs are ineffective and a lot are, are damaging. I mean, the, the statins, the newer diabetic drugs, the osteoporosis drugs, the, the vaccines, and the entire psychiatric pharmacy should never have been approved. They are all bestsellers, though. And the the newest uh, scam that they uh, they have going is the um, the vaccines, which none of which have been subjected to controlled trials with sugar pills, um, just like the psych drugs. The psych drugs were the last batch of uh, scams, and now we have seventy five, seventy four jabs that the kids have to get before they hit. 18 years old. And when I was a kid, it was five. And 
that's not even including the newly approved COVID vaccine that's supposed to be given to every kid every year between one and 18. It's crazy. Um, the implant device industry is very similar. It plays the same games. It's not as well known. It's smaller. And uh, generics are not very good. We have 90% of the American formulary is generic now because of the price gouging. And so the next area that is exceedingly corrupt is the journals and the academics of medicine. Uh, in the British Medical Journal last year, there was a um, editorial, the title of which was Time to Assume That Medical Literature is Fraudulent Until Proven Otherwise. And this is, you, you've heard of Sturgeon's Law, which says that he's a science fiction writer, and he said that 85% of everything is crap. He used a little stronger word. But um, it's likely much higher than that for medical journal articles because 75%, roughly 75% of the revenues to pay the academics are come from three sources. They're all big industry sources and they have agendas. They are the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust and Fauci's stuff. And Fauci has the NIAID, his, his group has passed out almost a trillion dollars in, in its history. It's incredible. Well, yes, so if, if those were the the parts of the machine, um, how are they allowed to get away with, with this? Is it all in the name of capitalism or like how, you know, I'm not for over-regulation, but I mean, uh, how are prows gouging and, and how are they getting away with, with this oh, stuff? Okay. So from all the, uh, Kai, the thing I didn't realize and the thing you don't realize because you're asked, you asked that question is that the regulatory agencies are completely captured by industry. Uh, and the one that everyone knows about is the SEC and stocks, right? <laughs> that one's obvious to everyone that they're they're working for the, uh, the big investment companies, which are so enormously wealthy. Uh, but uh, in medicine, the agencies are bought by bought and sold by the industry. And these include the FDA and the CDC and World Health Organization. They're basically industry uh, shills. So they make these standards which we're supposed to follow. And um, it, it ends up being just, the question is, how do we make more money, not how do, how do we help patients? So we are like, right now in America, we are like Japan during World War II. Nobody's in charge. And we are seeing very flawed decision-making. And, you know, there's there's no... There's no interest in the original constitutional rights or any of that stuff. It's just how do we make the most money? And the definition of this is the, the word that applies to this, the marriage of corporate and government uh, uh, interest is fascism. So that's where we are right now. And it's not a potential fascism. It's, it's fascist right now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say it's kind of the merging of corporate and the government because you have the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab, where he constantly talks about stakeholder capitalism, yet isn't stakeholder capitalism just a polite way to say fascism? Well, that guy is like a parody of a, of a troublemaker, isn't he? I mean, his, his uh, 
playbook seems like it's out of 1984. And if you're familiar with 1984, you'll recognize a lot of the themes he quotes. He's got a, a, a bust of linen on his desk, and it's it's been captured in photographs of the jackass. Um, so, uh, you know, he doesn't have any formal uh, or elected position there. He's just a he's somehow aggrandized power or he's a representative of the people who are powerful and this we're watching this agenda play out in real time so it's it's he's he's a, a wild part of the wild scene but let's stick with the uh, healthcare butchery there's an awful lot of that uh, going on and we can uh, we can go on about this i mean i don't know whether you guys are familiar with this idea but um, no psychiatric drug has ever been studied using proper sugar pill controls, right? So these things do not work and their side effects are tremendous. They advertise them as not being addictive. And it's true that they don't have opioid quality addiction characteristics, but their withdrawals are actually much more agonizing than opioids. Standard heroin withdrawal is like two or three days. You can lock somebody in a room, nobody dies and nobody, nobody commits suicide and they bang on the door. And then three days later, they're fine. Um, you know, of course the methadone and then newer, the suboxone withdrawals are much longer. They're, they're much longer half-life drugs, but, um, the psychiatric drugs, uh, many of these things you can, if you've been on Prozac for three or four years, most people never get off of that stuff. And, the well-known side effects of suicide and violence are not being, um, they're not being promoted because the drug companies are in charge of 75% of all TV advertising and almost 100% of the news advertising. So we've got these uh, active shooters who are all on these drugs. I mean, not all documented to be on these drugs, but my feeling is that documenting that 75% of them are taking these drugs is enough, right? And we, we, we have these narratives that, that where they want to get rid of our handguns or our, uh, our, our other guns, uh, you know, to sort of establish control instead of being honest about it and saying these people are a side effect of a drug that should never have been approved. Prozac was well known by Lilly to cause violence and suicide at the time that they applied for approval. And we only understood that they had these studies in their pocket when it became the most heavily litigated drug in history. And the suicides and the, and the violence started to be, uh, you know, and they settled lawsuit after lawsuit because the revenues that are produced from a drug, a blockbuster drug are so high. I mean, there are many, many billions. You can settle a few million dollar lawsuits easily, seal them and lock them and, uh, have everybody signed confidentiality requir uh, requirements. Uh, but um, Peter Bregan was one of the first expert witnesses for these, these drugs. And he was a believer in standard psychiatry until he looked at the material obtained in discovery from Lilly uh, about the Prozac suicides and deaths. And uh, he learned that uh, these things were almost demonic. And you were giving somebody a drug for suicide or for uh, depression that uh, can produce a, a suicide rate that's it's outrageous. And the descriptions of these suicides are entirely different from ordinary, uh, you know, suicides that we had a literature about before. The ordinary suicides were something like uh, uh, 85 percent men. These are split 50 50 in, in the sexes. And. Uh, they had a complete disregard for the people that 
who were around them. They, they somehow lost their uh, uh, relationships and the kids would hang themselves in the closets beside their patients or parents' bedrooms. And uh, the, the women would drown their own kids in their car. And we never heard anything like that before the SSRIs. And if you guys, if your listeners want to go to a website to confirm what I I am saying, um, check out ssristories.com. I, it might be .org, uh, but it's SSRI Stories, and that has 5,000 news reports about uh, SSRI uh, violence and suicide. I've got many other uh, uh, references in my book. Trust the science. You know, we always hear that. I mean, that was... It doesn't just apply to COVID. I mean, you could say the same thing with climate change, many other topics where they shove that down your throat. Trust the science. You know, what does this mean in terms of a doctor? And how does the healthcare system essentially convince the FDA to pass a lot of these, quote unquote, you know, scientific studies when in fact they're really just pure fraudulent studies. I mean, I know you talk about ghost writers, but can you kind of explain how these studies even get pushed through in the first place? Okay. So the first thing is remember that the FDA, when, you know, you guys probably have read in, about influence theory and how gifts alter behavior profoundly. And there's a guy from Phoenix, a PhD from Phoenix. His name is, uh, let's see, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but he's got a book is entitled Influence. Do you, uh, Kai, do you remember his name? I mean, you probably have read that book. It's Robert, um, such with a C, Robert. Yeah. Kiandia, yeah. I forget the last name, but yeah. Right. So uh, when you give someone, it, you know, you take a girl out for a date and you buy her dinner and that influences her behavior. You know, it's 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 not subtle. Uh, but when you pay 50 percent of the revenues of an industry or a uh, agency um, like the FDA, the FDA has a five billion dollar budget. It's a huge, huge agency, but it's regulating an industry. It's regulating two industries, the drug industry food and drug, right? The drug industry has a $1.3 trillion uh, gross worldwide. And the food industry, God only knows how big that is. So they're entirely susceptible to uh, bribery or, uh, it, you know, essentially when the FDA's revenues are 50% pharma derived, if they don't approve a certain drug, they may not be able to make payroll. It's that crazy. So that, that, that's the answer for how it works. Well, I was going to say, so in your, uh, in Butchered by Healthcare, you see that 80 to 90% of the newest drugs are not improvements over older drugs. Um, I'm just curious to know, like, what's happening behind the scenes when they make new drugs and promote new drugs? Well, it's easier to get these things approved if they're related to the older drugs. That's kind of part of it. And I remember the second part of the question, um, the, the, how, what are the statistical flaws and the other things that are used to promote these studies? And I can assure you they are myriad. There are, there are you know, they've got more tricks than uh, Felix the cat. And it's hard for practicing doctors to sort this out because with Obamacare, we had one third more work heaped on us. I don't know whether you guys are aware of this, but the uh, 
the medical records keeping requirement using computers, uh, these poor doctors are going home and clicking away on their, their laptops, trying to finish their, their uh, medical records, clicking all the boxes so they get paid. So uh, the doctors don't have time to read anything. And they don't understand, and this is not going to be subtle. Your your listeners are going to understand this uh, from a simple explanation, but they don't even generally look very carefully at something like this. So there's this concept of absolute versus relative risk. And the studies are all reported in relative risk terms. That means what percentage does disease improve with the therapy? Well, it can improve by 50%. If you have one person in 10,000, it goes to a half a person in 10,000 with the disease, right? But it's still, the absolute risk is how much mortality or death difference is there between the using the drug and not using the drug. It still might be a half a patient in 10,000, which is invisible statistically. And it should never, it should never, decisions in healthcare should never be based on things that have a smaller uh, input, in my opinion, of one in, one in 50, and they're being based on things that have a 1% uh, 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 effect, uh, which is, there are arguments for that, but um, some people say 1 in 30 effect uh, is, so you take a drug, you think it's going to uh, save you from heart disease, it improves your chances by, in theory, according to the study, uh, and probably the study was done fraudulently, but in theory, it might improve your chances of dying of a heart attack by one in 200 or one in 500 or one in a hundred, uh, you know, the, the, so, um, you know, they're, they're treating very, they, they get very, very, uh, small results from these studies, yet they are allowed to say that the relative risk may improve by 50 or a hundred percent. You see, it's the relative risk is not the total risk. Does that make sense to you guys? Or is that too abstract? I can go over that again. If no, you know. no, it makes it makes total sense. I mean, can you kind of explain too, like the difference between say, like in in vitro versus in vivo? I mean, I see a lot of studies where it's like in in vitro, which is essentially is just in a test tube. I mean, the, the, how, what's the real world application to well, whatever? It's they're like testing? the difference between studying mice and studying people. It may have some applicability. They're both mammals, uh, but. Uh, a lot of the um, studies don't don't apply. So I've got a chapter on the statistics and how they're adulterated in butchered by healthcare, and you can look at that. It's I re-edited it over and over. Spent you know forty hours on that one chapter trying to make it simple to understand. But there suffice it to say that there are dozens of ways that these companies routinely uh, ruin their. Uh, the, the statistics and the, and they, they know how to game the FDA. And it was an effort before, now it's no effort at all because uh, we've had this example of the, the COVID vax being approved for children, which, I mean, it's, it's an obvious criminal act, but the FDA's group, they're so purchased, bought and, bought and purchased that they, uh, they approve this thing for kids. And then more recently for yearly use in these kids. I mean, just imagine what these kids are going to get when they, uh, when they get this uh, uh, poison shot every year. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. You know, iatrogenic uh, causes of death, I think, is officially listed as the third leading cause of death, according to a John Hopkins study from 2018, which, of course, was, was pre-COVID. I've, I've read articles or studies that say, 
that iatrogenic death is actually the leading cause of death in America with probably close to a million deaths per year. Heart disease currently is number one, right, right around 700,000 deaths. I mean, I've heard you in previous podcasts talk about even you know drugs that are prescribed in the proper dosage. I mean, could really be deadly. I mean, what do you, what number do you think the real number of deaths by medical malpractice or medical uh, mistreatment would actually be at? Well, malpractice is a separate issue. Malpractice is uh, something. If you <laughs> the definition of malpractice is they do something wrong that's against uh, accepted standards, and this produces a harm and results in injury. Right. So. Um, so that's a separate in, uh, issue. But uh, what I was talking about and what Peter Gertsche quotes as 200,000 a year deaths between U.S. and Europe, and that's not a new figure. It's a relatively old figure. Uh, and it's a, it's a wild guess because it's very hard to estimate this thing, this sort of thing, because, you know, people go in a hospital and they die. <laughs> they die from multifactorial causes. And uh, you, you, it's very hard to pin down. And the, the death certificates don't reflect any accurate information. It's a, it's some, it's a, you know, autopsies are quite accurate if they're done honestly, but we, ha we have no autopsies on, we have virtually no autopsies on, on, uh, COVID backs, uh, campers. So I actually do want to go back to, to why the 80% of the, the newest drugs are, are not improvements. Like, you know, they spent so much money developing a drug. Like, I'm curious to know, like, what what are what is actually happening there? Well, is it just another drug yeah. to sell? Is it is it fully mo motivated by money, or are they? I, I guess okay. what I'm trying to get to the point of is like. So let, let me just summarize how it all works. And this is uh, this is from the introductory chapter of Welcome to Drug World in Butchered by Healthcare, and I have this uh, anonymous physician who summarized this. He, I, he said the immensely, and we immensely wealthy and powerful pharmaceutical companies have become more and more entitled and emboldened over the past three decades. The FDA requires drug studies for patent approval. So contract research groups do trials that spoil science and make questionable medications look good. The contract research groups, 70% of them or something like that are from other countries now. So there's even less oversight for them than they would have in the United States. Mathematicians massage the numbers, bury data that don't, don't support the drugs. Sometimes they even get rid of patients who are who don't, you know, they put the patients in the wrong group. Industry employees then write up the trials. So these are all ghostwritten. Virtually all the medical journal articles now are ghostwritten by industry uh, people. And obviously you can make things look and they send them to the FDA and the FDA rubber stamps it because their financing comes straight from corporates uh, and they the companies pay prominent physicians to put their names on as authors many of them have nothing to do with the work and medical journal editors who make money off of the pharmaceutical companies approve them and publications automatic uh and they lend credibility to all kinds of stuff that basically doesn't work or hardly works at all uh like the entirety of the psychiatric um formulary so next step is the physician opinion leaders with transparent financial conflicts, such as research grants, and they can give as much money for research as they want. Uh, they create prescribing guidelines that minimize risk and exaggerate benefits. And these standards of practice um, are, uh, they command practicing doctors who now all work for corporations. 
to for just how to how to behave. And then they have put forth a marketing campaign that goes directly to the public. And we only have two countries in the world that can do this, New Zealand and the United States, and two individual physicians. Everybody thinks this is inappropriate, uh, but uh, the public ones are worse. And their favored strategy is um, AstroTurf advocacy groups. And if you, you know what that means, that means they fund these people, some of which may be idealistic and have family members that have the disease into uh, promoting the drugs, right? And they disease monger. In other words, they spin horror stories that spread fear to sell drugs. So that's sort of the framework of the whole thing. You know, how long were you practicing for in total? How many years? <laughs> Well, I'm 69 now, so it was quite, it was quite as my whole adult life. And I'm like Rip Van Winkle. I I awoke. I was just marching in step, Jesse, with the rest of the uh, people. But I was in a like a little eddy at the side of the river called cosmetic surgery, and so uh, we had relationships with Standard Medicine, but they probably had stronger relationships with you know cosmetology and hairdressers. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but. Uh, but I, uh, towards the end of my career, I started looking at bioidentical hormones. So I had, you know, my women matured with me. That's a nice word. Uh, it's, you know, we all got old together and the women were being driven crazy by their hormones. And they came in and they thought that if they got a cosmetic surgery procedure, that they'd, they'd be fine. <laughs> but they were wrong. Most plastic surgeons just operate on a string of these women without even considering what their problems are. But I trained and uh, learned and read about uh, bioidentical hormones. And I started prescribing them and it made a huge difference. It was one of the most satisfying things I did over the course of my career. Um, so I found out that the FDA had put black box warnings on all three major hormones, testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. And these claimed that the hormones were caused uh, heart disease and breast cancer and cancer and uh, blood clots, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it's, none of it's true. We, we have many reviews of the subject that say that it basically doesn't happen. I mean, there are there are little uh, uh, threads of truth in among the, the nonsense, but uh, I couldn't figure it out. And I went into the FDA, studied, studied hormones and realized that the whole field had been ruined. The science had been ruined and they'd been... Uh, uh, we've been lied to about about most of it. And these drugs, we, we knew about these drugs for 80 to 100 years. I mean, we had been studying endocrine, you know, the way the hormones go around in the body uh, for that time period. And we knew a lot about it. And uh, they're, they're almost harmless and they have tremendous benefits. They would eliminate the need for many um, other medications like statins that, to bring down the cholesterol. So I studied that and then I gradually got into healthcare corruption. And it was like, it was not like opening a can of worms. It was like a dumpster full of worms. And it, it, I just had an OCD attack that lasted three years and resulted in my book, Butchered by Healthcare. I usually hold it up here, but I, here it is. Here's my book, Butchered by Healthcare. I, 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 saw, in a, I, saw, in a pre, I saw in a previous oh. interview where I believe you said that you thought that 80% of women with Alzheimer's wouldn't have it if they were just to be on a estrogen pill okay now this will introduce you to hormone secrets and that sounds like an absolutely crazy wild claim that would destroy any credibility i have uh but uh i think it's true and 
I think it's the biggest factor in dementia, the hormone hormonal decline, or at least it could be prevented in a vast majority of cases by supplementing estrogen. And you guys, and I, I put an, I put a full appendix uh, in my book, uh, Appendix C, with those 75 references. They're not all about uh, estradiol or estrogen, but um, the other hormones have a tremendous effect on uh, Alzheimer's as well. And I challenge anyone to go through that and uh, tell me I'm wrong and tell me that the, what we're doing now, which is supplying drugs that cost thousands of dollars a month to people that don't work, you know, not the people don't work, the drugs don't work. Uh, that's, that's our current strategy. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's really an obscenity and, and these, these hormones, uh, have tremendous benefits. So that's the, uh, that's the teaser to get you into hormone secrets. I mean, I can, I can, uh, read parts of it. I can read you testimonials or whatever you want, but, um, we have a lot more to talk about, about standard healthcare corruption. You know, when I asked you how long you were practicing for, my my kind of where I was going with that was just, did you notice a change in the industry over, you know, four decades or so of you being in it? Was it like a gradual change or was there like a moment where all of a sudden profit became the primary motive instead of the Hippocratic oath of do no harm? Yeah, that do no harm thing. It's not quite like that. It's more like... Uh do the best you can for the patient. Uh, you know, and that do no harm is a popular, uh, popular misconception, but, uh, uh, no, I was Rip Van Winkle. I woke up all of a sudden and it's been agonizing to learn all this stuff. And what happened to me was I just freaking started studying it about five or six years ago. And I, I, I was in, again, I was in this eddy, the sideline, it was, uh, all fee for service. It was all cash market. I didn't have to deal with health insurance companies. I didn't have medical records problems. I, they were my charts were all made of paper, and uh, you know I had problems because my uh, uh, you know the the uh, competitors were very predatory. They used regulatory agencies to to hassle you, and there's a finite rate of complications, including deaths, that occur even when you do things like cosmetic surgery that have very low. Uh, complication and problem rate. So, uh, and then of course you've got, uh, you know, to make to make light of this a little bit uh, for for Kai's benefit, you've got the female psychology to deal with. <laughs> you know, but my wife helped me with that. <laughs> you know, so uh, no, for me, I think it was a boiling fro frog syndrome for other doctors and uh, who were involved with the system, and they just got uh, slammed with one thing after another, and they tried to comply, but. Petting a rabid dog does not work. You you can't comply with all this stuff. And if you do, uh, you'll get bit and you're going to die of rabies. So that's that's where we are now with everything else. But I, again, I think for this podcast, I think we ought to stick with the uh, healthcare corruption because there's awful lot of stuff to talk about. You know, in, in your book, Cassandra's Memo, you uh, <laughs> have an entire chapter basically kind of dedicated to the term conspiracy theory. And I think that's kind of important because if you say something that someone disagrees with, they just say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. I mean, can you kind of talk about the history of the term conspiracy theory and how people like use it as a cudgel? This thing was actually invented by the CIA to try to disprove the uh, fact that they had killed uh, JFK. <laughs> So, so, I mean, the, the, the evidence around that is robust and you have to get into it. 
uh, to understand how robust it is, but it's been completely dismissed by the mainstream using strategies such as this. Now, today, there are markers for the truth that you can that you can uh, easily recognize if you if you're if you're alert, you have both eyes open. One of them is this idea, the the conspiracy theory term. Um, there's another 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 one is fact finder and fact checking. If they are doing that, you know that somebody's paying somebody to dismiss a narrative. Um, what what are the other ones, Kai? I mean, there's 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 two dozen of these words that I went into in one of my articles, and that uh, Mercola also has written about uh, very eloquently, and I included his article in my uh, book, uh, Cassandra's Memo. Uh, but what what are the fact finding? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, fact misinformation, 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 fake, fake news. Fake uh, news. You can... That's not a standard yeah. term. Mis- it's not a scientific term. Misinformation is is something that sort of came up, came up and, and slapped us in the face from the side. So, no, I, I, I just gradually figured this stuff out. And I mean, I'm I'm a lone ranger. I basically, uh, you know, I just pulled these books out of the literature and and started to read them and uh and then finally we just felt compelled to write it have you experienced any kind of like backlash for talking about these things and, and writing about them not yet but i'm expecting it to happen yeah. and i i can't imagine i you know in my age group even if they threaten to kill me what do i have to lose i'm six, 69 i don't have my life exp- expectancy isn't that long and i once you you know, there's an Einstein quote about those who have the privilege to understand have a duty to act. And if you don't understand this, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you don't have an ordinary ethical system. If you understand what I've written, um, you have to stand up because it, 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 you know, these people who we're facing uh, will take everything we have. And recently they've been killing our children with the vaccine and with with the, uh, the the policies, and they've been killing us in the hospitals. I mean, it's just it's just astounding what we've let them get away with. And uh, can can we go over COVID? <laughs> sure. Like I don't. But, that, that's you know. That but could we've be got like a lot to minutes. talk about. Yeah. Well, we've yeah. got a lot to talk about about the other stuff. So let's let's instead of that, um, we can save that okay. for another time. Okay. And uh, let me tell you more about uh, medical corruption. Uh, this okay. is going to astound you. Uh, you know, cancer treatment or oncology has we you know these guys um they've got a difficult job they deal with death and dying and difficult patients and the families and all that but um they've been given a kickback uh through our system where they get 20 percent of the medication costs uh get kicked back to them as a uh, injection injection cost so the the uh, uh, goal of all these people is to get a uh, a clinic going where they got uh, 20 patients every day, five days a week in Barca loungers, you know, those recliners and giving them drugs. And over the course of a year, a hundred thousand uh, dollars worth of chemo, which is the average price. Maybe it was the average three years ago. It's probably more now. They go up to $500,000 a year. They get uh, a fifth of that delivered into their uh, uh, bank account uh, for uh, just starting the IV and watching the patients in the Barca lounger. So that's that's what's happened to oncology. And two thirds of their income comes from retailing these drugs. And it's it's legal, uh, but it would be criminal fee splitting if we three were all MDs. And Kai said, Robert, I got I made up a drug 
and I want you to sell it, I'll give you 20% off the top. That's called capping, which is an illegal act. It's a felony. If we get caught, we can go to jail. But it's legal for the, the drug companies. They somehow drove through a, um, they drove through a, a, a loophole in the, uh, through the legislature somehow. So everybody knows about opioids. We don't have to get into too much detail about that. Basically, uh, there's a company named Purdue, which uh, finally declared bankruptcy. It was only two, one of two pharma companies that had been put out of business. And it wasn't put out of business by uh, regulators, unfortunately, Kai. They should have been put out of business by the regulators, but it was put out of business by the plaintiff's lawyers, who I've never liked. But uh, now I say, God bless the plaintiff's lawyers, it, it seems to be the only honest force left in America. So they they promoted OxyContin to nearly anyone with a painful condition, claiming it was safe and effective. They gave the medical boards uh, money uh, and they started this trend, which has uh, ended up in a, in a position where we have uh, uh, China uh, giving free fentanyl to Mexico for importation to the United States and uh you know giving the uh the money that's made from them to their their kids they have here to buy real estate i mean it's just it's an absolutely insane trend it, the the deaths have not declined since the regulation since we we became cognizant of what's happening uh we've got over a hundred thousand uh, uh fentanyl uh, deaths uh, in the last 12 months now so i mean it's it's crazy it, have you ever seen the tv show i believe it was on on hulu called dope sick I've I've heard of it. I you know at this stage I don't watch a lot of videos or TV uh, because I am a little higher level and I understand the premises usually. Um, so I, I I never I never uh, I never saw that. But tell me about it. I mean, basically Michael Keaton, who's the main actor, he plays a doctor who's prescribing the oxycontin, and then he becomes addicted to it himself. But it kind of it talks about the whole Purdue story and the Slacker family. But it kind of does a really good job. They actually take it from the the perspective kind of of the the people that are addicted to kind of humanize the patients. But I thought for for people that wanted to understand more about the Slacker family, like it's a digestible way to to kind of see that story. I, yeah, I like that. The Slacker family. They're not the Slacker family. They're the Sackler family. But we call they, them the they, Slacker family. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. Slacker family. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, but those guys, um, they they were being sued individually. The ge the generation now who owns the the money, uh, they're 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 multi billionaires. Uh, they uh, basically should be uh, taken out, and all their all their ill gotten gains should be stripped away from them from killing all these kids of ours. Uh, but um, they're, they're still apparently chasing them. But, you know, they've got their money in uh, Europe and all that stuff. So and, and you talked about how the oncology doctors, you know, are getting this 20%. Can you talk about pediatricians? I mean, you have, I mean, you mentioned it before. I mean, when you were a kid, you had five vaccines. I think when Kai and I were children, we had 12 or 13. And now it's in the 70s. Add COVID to that, it's in the mid 70s. And the you know, a pediatrician used to no, be it's one in of the eighties. It's in the eighties. <laughs> it's 80s in the and weren't pediatricians twenty years ago one of the lower paid doctors, and now they're one of the most lucrative fields in the medical profession because of the kickbacks they get from these vaccines and other drugs that they inject these little babies and infants and kids with. Well, <clears throat> I don't think that's true, uh, but I don't know for sure. But I do know that they get injection fees for every vaccine. And so this is their, 
their business model. I mean, like the psychiatrist's business model to see a patient every 15 minutes and prescribe another drug. If they don't do that, they don't make enough money to feed their families, right? It used to be they talked to them or they had some pretense of uh, some other uh, therapies, but now they just prescribe the drugs. For the pediatrician, their whole business model is trying to get the kids in for, quote, well, baby visits. And these involve the vaccines. And I mean, to the pediatrician's credit, they have close relationships and I've, with their patients that I've never regarded them as um, being all that money driven. And in fact, they didn't make much money. Uh, but you take away the vaccines and I don't think they could pay their, their front office girl. So, uh, you know, there's so many of the doctors who haven't gotten the memo about the vaccines who don't understand that these things don't work and are hazardous uh, consequentially hazardous. And the easiest, the easiest path for your listeners to understand what I'm saying is true is become familiar with the Children's Health Defense website and go on there, uh, there and watch VAXXED 1 and 2. Those are movies about this. And they show the difference between the kids that haven't gotten the vaccine, any vaccines, who seem to be very healthy and the kids who have been vaccinated, who have a litany of problems uh, now, including an autism rate, which approaches one in 30. And people say this may not be caused by uh, the vaccines, but I challenge them to challenge the following. We have 10,000 kids in America that have fallen down right after a childhood vaccine, started banging their heads and never spoke again, right? Do you need a double-blind controlled placebo trial to prove that the vaccines cause the problem? And the, vac- the autism rate went from one in 10,000, it's actually a neurological injury rate, to one in 30 now. It's astounding. The social costs are going to bankrupt us. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I don't know how things are going to work out. And, you know, you guys are in your 40s. I mean, I, I, I hope you're able to carry the burden that we have dropped because my generation didn't prevent all this stuff. I mean, it seems like we're a little narcissistic. We came out of the 70s. And I, I hope you guys can uh, can keep keep the fight going. We're long gone, which will be soon, <laughs> you know, which won't be very long. You know, it's kind of funny because you said you're from the 70s. You know, it's like the 60s and 70s, kind of like this hippy dippy generation yeah. talking about this free love. And then all of a sudden these people became the establishment and all about money. I mean, where did that whole era go wrong? Where it just completely switched. I was asleep. Remember, I'm Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> I don't know. You didn't no. see it coming, yeah. Well, no, nobody's uh, nobody can predict the future, and uh, yeah. this what's going on now. I didn't understand. I didn't see it. I didn't see it clearly, or begin to see it clearly until eighteen months ago. So, I mean, waking mm. up is agonizing, but trying to trying to tell someone else what's going on is even more difficult when you're in the middle of the most pervasive mm. propaganda in history. And, you know, Emerson said that a man becomes what he thinks about most of the time. And I realize that these people who have the box on the TV on for six hours a day turn into barking little paralogical CNNs. That's what they are. I mean, they just they just talk about uh, nonsense, just the way they're fed. They're fed these uh, straw man arguments and they repeat them verbatim. I mean, it's it's just been incredible to wake up to that thing and trying to educate other people about what's going on is well nigh impossible. It's very discouraging. And you guys have read RFK's book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Some of my friends woke up after they read this. So this thing 
It's got 2,200 references. And it is unchallengeable. It's had 1.3 million sales and has been censored off of the New York Times, top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was, it, it basically, they wouldn't write about it. I mean, it's just, it's a crazy scene now. I never thought I'd see anything like this. And I, they basically, I've, it's cost all of us so much. And, uh, you know, it's cost me any pride I had in my medical uh, background. And, uh, you know, five or six friends have died from the backs. And, you know, it's cost me uh, my peace of mind during my uh, the time when I should be in a relaxed dotage. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, kind of curious as a as a retired medical doctor. I mean, you must have had friends ask you about things going on with COVID. I mean, it somehow just got so politicized where people didn't really didn't matter what you believed as long as you were part of a political camp. That's what you were thought. And I think you have a chapter in Cassandra's memo where I think your you know your kids called you a Republican, like somehow that's a, a slur. But like how do we how did it become so politicized? And like do people tr- you know trust what you have to say as a as a doctor about it or are they just more concerned about watching CNN? I feel like we're in a twilight like twenty twenty opened up like a twilight zone for everybody. Whitney Webb, I think that's her name. She wrote a book about uh, the history of the last uh, century and how all this stuff developed. And it's a little hard to believe that those of us who kind of burst on the scene and sort of tried to understand it uh, from a perspective, you know, postcard shot of the last 18 months to five years. But there have been, uh, you know, the global psychopaths have been working on this uh, material for 100 years. And they have infiltrated so many of our institutions and the corporates all seem to be on their side. I mean, so many of them. So uh, the, the answer to that is, no, I didn't uh, I didn't foresee any of it. And, uh, you know, but that's that's a good reference. And I haven't read it in its entirety, but there Mercola has a podcast with her, as does uh, uh, there's another one on the Children's Health Defense website. Yeah, I mean, Whitney Webb's book that you're referencing, I mean, it's a 900-page book. I think she put it up into two parts, and uh, she actually lives in uh, Chile. Not that that has anything to do with it, but and then we're yeah, just, out of curi- just out of curiosity, I- uh, this is edited out, but how much time do we have left with you so we kind of know how to frame the, the next questions? Uh, for me? Yeah, well, how much, two yeah. hours doesn't matter to me. Oh, but, okay. uh, it's okay. up to you. Okay, I'll keep going then. Okay, I yeah. mean, if you want to keep going and and get two episodes out of it, we can dive into the rest of it for all. I yeah, we get yeah. a ton of shorts. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, perfect. <laughs> okay, hey, I, I'm not sure. I think you um, you touched on things that'll get censored, but I mean, you know, you're gonna have to yeah, judge that. This is. I'm not sure. Like we, we just have to put it up and see what yeah, happens. Well, yeah, I we're gonna not, t- but we'll take the whole thing and then we'll see what we got. Yeah, but. But I, I mean, are you okay to talk about the the trans movement and and kids getting to. put into hormones? Or yeah, I'd love to. What are your thoughts right. on that? Like, I'm I'm waking up myself. I'm I'm coming from. <laughs> okay, okay. So, I'd love to talk about the trans movement. Um, just curious, 
like I said, I'm personally waking up as well. And so like, you know, I'm, I'm coming from an eyes of like completely, like I have no idea what's going on, but like, you know, I see, I see kids that are, uh, you know, young kids are, their parents are okay with them and or the teachers are okay with them getting into hormones early or, um, you know, doing uh, non-reversible um, uh, procedures. Uh, just c- curious, what are your thoughts on what's happening with that movement? And is the health industry a proponent of the movement to cash in on this? Is that happening or am I wrong? Um, so let's define for your listeners what what these people are going through. And this, I believe that it's primarily an attempt to ruin the sexuality of adolescent and pre-adolescent girls. And it's the, the evil of this is beyond imagining. And the parents are not drawing limits. And we're in the midst of this propaganda campaign that normalizes all this. So um, if you understand what goes on, I don't think anyone with any half a brain would would uh, uh, believe it was a good idea. So what's what's happening is um, young women, as you may remember, have many crises, <laughs> Kai. And so, you know, some of them are difficult problems like parents breaking up. Some of them are real, are imagined, you know, but young women are uh, uh, are up and down and they, and so one of the things that uh, has been happening is that these people are directed towards um, these influencers, which essentially are groomers. Now, these people believe in what they're doing, obviously, but they're purple-haired girls on YouTube who tell them that they probably are mistaken about the most basic thing in in human existence, which is is which sex you are. And uh, so the, the stepwise process is to first use breast binders to disguise your uh, body and your sexuality um, if you if you they can convince you about this and you know they can listen to these YouTube videos for hundreds of hours in their own privacy of their cell phone without their parents around and so the binders are tight irritate irritating they worsen asthma and they occasionally crack ribs so they can destroy breast tissue it flattens your breast makes some little sagging uh, items so uh, Puberty blockers are encouraged next. Now, this Lupron drug is a thing used for prostate cancer and female infertility, and it makes everyone feel terrible. And it may produce irreversible brain damage, right? So after you've had this thing for a while, they're encouraged to take adult male doses of testosterone, 10 to 20 times what a normal female needs to function. You guys have testosterone. It's very important for you, but you don't need to get a dose that will make your face and body assume a permanently masculine shape, right? Vaginas shrink, become dry, uteruses atrophy and frequently cramp. Clitorises become huge and protrude and voices deepen that these effects are permanent. Sex is difficult and irritating and orgasms become impossible for many of them. So that's not the, that's not the finish of it, right? I interviewed one of my friends who is a top surgeon, which means he, he slices breasts off these crazy women that have been influenced by the, the people on YouTube. And uh, the the nipples are not very uh, natural. I mean, he's good at it, but they still have a, a reconstructed unnatural horizontal scar. Uh, some of them eventually have their wombs and ovaries also cut out. And a few have this cosmetic procedure where they put the urethra through the enlarged clitoris uh, and try to make it look like 
the penis, right? And this involves taking a whole batch of skin, fat, nerve, and artery from the forearm, and that leaves a disfiguring scar. And if the surgery is botched, the whole area can turn into scar tissue that doesn't have any sensation, just like a clitorectomy that the Muslims do, right? I mean, it's incredible. And so I, you know, I read the books and uh, I have an interview on my uh, Substack of a, um, you know, one of these authors by another uh, uh, podcaster. And the thing you have to realize is these people are miserable and they're miserable before and after the transition. There's a 40% attempted suicide rate in the transgender community, quote unquote, the transgender community. And so um, it, you, they can't reverse it. You, you, you basically never become feminine again, even if you decide to change back. You can't put a breast implant in and, uh, you know, you get a cold, firm and unnatural result if you do that, because there's no breast tissue there to disguise the, the uh, implant. And so we've got this uh, long history of destructive fads uh, based on young women's hysteria and the Salem witch trials were one. Uh, more recently, you may have recall in your childhood, the McMartin recovered memory theories and the Mark McMartin cases in LA, where they sent all these daycare providers to jail based on these, uh, these stories that were, that came out of these little kids that they had magic basements where they tortured the kids and sexually abused them. Well, all that stuff was overturned. The people were let out of jail eventually, but uh, a lot of lives were destroyed. <clears throat> and the phantom memory thing was discredited because, for example, there's nobody that went through the Holocaust who forgot about that one, right? So the, you know, and I have a personal punchline with that. I had a psychologist work me over uh, during this period, and he claimed that I had phantom memories of shagging my mother. <laughs> so I, I, I spent a lot of expensive hours working on that one, uh, but I never quite bought his theories. So um, that's a, uh, you know, and the last point I want to make is that most adult gays and lesbians see this trend towards transgenders as a fraud. They speak out against it and they refuse to be identified with it. And, you know, here's this other word, transphobe, that's being used to uh, stigmatize the people who who have half a, a brain and half a common sense. And I mean, this thing is being used as a way to ensure compliance with a lot of other agendas. In other words, if you'll believe a man is a woman, you're capable of being convinced about anything. So that's the that's the the underlying agenda is to so, go ahead. So you think the agenda is more ideological than it is just about a way for the medical profession to turn children into a customer for the rest of their life. Once you have the procedure procedure to transition from a boy to a girl or vice versa, then you have to be on hormone blockers the rest of your life. So you're a constant customer. Or do you think it's a, a combination of both? Like, not only are you a constant customer, but it's also ideological. Okay. So I view Big Pharma as a an opportunist, not a prime mover. Now, it's true. They, they're, they're the most evil industry in history is judged by their federal set, criminal settlements with U.S. prosecutors, which are billions of dollars every year. But um, I like China, I don't think that they are uh, uh, kinetic. They've just taken advantage of all this stuff. And they're perfectly happy to cooperate with the whole thing and to harvest the amazing returns and to even 
uh, put themselves at risk by, uh, you know, performing all this fraudulent stuff, you know, and uh, I, I, I would think that anybody who's involved with this would be afraid that they'd end up uh, in jail the rest of their lives. But, you know, I mean, the chances don't seem uh, like they're all that good now because our, our you know, our courts have been uh, uh, taken over. And, uh, you know, some of the some of the plaintiff's lawyers are making uh, strides, but uh, uh, getting these people before a prosecutor is uh, is, is hard. But uh, uh, no, I don't. I, I don't think that they the thing is all about pharma. I think this is about a uh, central control mechanism uh, by a group of psychopaths who uh, basically have encouraged all these narratives. And this thing comes out of the U.S. and the West. It's not Chinese. The Chinese are just cooperating, uh, you know, and they've got a war on America and they're, they're a huge problem. Uh, you know, they're sending all the fentanyl to us and they're, they're uh, you know, they, they cooperated with the... Uh, with the COVID thing and uh, and the vaccine and and all the medicines are made in China and all that, but no, I think it came largely out of Harvard. Uh, you know, Klaus Schwab and Kissinger went to the same Harvard. Uh, they have the same Harvard background, and a, a lot of these people and these ideas came out of American academic institutions, and they're basically communist uh, ideas. They they they're totalitarian, and they're working on this thing to get us all uh, using their central uh, bank digital currencies and uh, ba basically, uh, you know, make the, make the control grid something like we saw in the, for the Canadian truckers when they got their money taken away. Um, so, so that's my conclusion. That's jumping to the end. I'll leave a link to, so your listeners can download uh, Cassandra's secrets, Cassandra's memo. You, everyone knows who Cassandra was. She was a tro Trojan princess who was given the, the uh, uh, gift of prophecy by Zeus in exchange for her favors. But she reneged on the favors, Guy. She reneged on those favors. And so I'm sorry. I, I'm just, I, you know, I'm an old guy. I'm allowed to talk like this. She reneged <laughs> on the favors. So he, uh, uh, he made it so her prophecies would never be believed. So that's what we're facing with this media censorship. We're Cassandra's. And, you know, your listeners know about Substack right? Substack is a, is a free platform as yet. Uh, and it's a blog platform and, mm -hmm. uh, the freedom movement seems to center there. My podcast is robertyoho.substack.com and you can read my material there, but it's easier to download the book and I'll give you the link to do that for free. Okay. I'm not yeah. a, I don't charge Cassandra never charged for her prophecies and I don't charge <laughs> either. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Cassandra. But uh, can I go back to like, do you think and correct me if, if I'm wrong, that uh, is population control a partially an agenda for normalizing the, the trans movement? Okay, so like, no matter how absurd where, it gets. Now we're, we're getting back to my central premises in uh, Cassandra's Secrets. And if you want to go into that, we can, we can, we can jump in and, uh, and you can. Uh... So the, the story, the central story is um, what is going on? You know, how can all this, all these lies and all this craziness be occurring? It seems impossible. Well, you know, the, if you study this psychopath thing, you realize that this explains a lot of it. The people running the show are glib liars. If you think of what Fauci has told us, and he's a middle manager. This guy's not a, uh, not a, a main uh, uh, actor. Uh, 
if you think about the things he's told us, he's absolutely doesn't think that telling the truth is a value, you know, and that's the easiest way to identify a psychopath. <clears throat> there are, there are psychopath tests with lists of criteria, which I detail in Cassandra's memo. But um, they basically, they make no contribution to the society. They don't exchange value for value. Their motivations are greed, cheating, damaging, and sometimes killing. And lies, conspiracies, and intimidation are their trademarks. So we've seen all this. And we see their behavior as irrational. So most of us just reject their existence out of hand. Others think they are crazy or psychotic. They mean, but this is not true. They're, they see reality accurately, but they lack an operating system of morals and values and decent human relationships. And so what we're seeing, this agenda, the central agenda we're seeing is, quote, overpopulation. Well, if you think about it for more than 30 seconds, you realize that the solution for overpopulation is killing and destruction, right? Starving, killing, destruction. And all these things that we're seeing now are part and parcel of this psychopathic agenda of decreasing the population, right? So COVID was a purpose-built bioweapon, right? The, it, you know, whether it was released or not from the lab or um, just it was an accident, we don't know. The vaccine is clearly a second attack. We probably have 25 million dead worldwide from the vaccine, and that's been much worse than COVID. And we've been we've had the therapies concealed that would have halted the pandemic. I mean, it's crazy. I've got all that information in COVID in my uh, Cassandra's memo book. Now, this transgender thing seems like the best attack vector on the whole phenomenon because it's so obviously insane. And, uh, you know, it's being promulgating promulgated to get us to think that up is down, black is white and anything they say should be believed. I mean, I go to a healthcare facility in Southern California that still makes us wear masks. They're obviously, obviously, you know, there's nobody there that under, that doesn't understand that masks are useless. They're they're trying to turn the people that go there into total sheep, and they're they're largely successful. So uh, they're trying to normalize pedophilia. This is another attack factor. This is absurd to 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 the extreme. Their, their worst crime, in my opinion, is their currency debasement. We have, we have let them inflate our currency, the strongest currency in history, with hardly a raised hand. It's the most massive financial crime ever. They're inciting war. I mean, basically, if these guys, if the one nuclear device gets set off anywhere in the world, the mutants in charge of the U.S. government will have an excuse to declare martial law. And they've thrown our borders open to foreign predators. I mean, they've they've been we we touched on the prescription drugs a little bit. Basically, for decades, they've promoted the use of all these things that are worse than worse than useless. The vaccines and the psych drugs have no utility and should have never been approved. Um, and there, you know, there are no double blind controlled trials on those vaccines at all. I didn't realize that until three or four months ago. Um, and because I thought, you know, I swallowed the narrative for that anyway. And you guys may not have heard about the federal money that's incentivized doctors to kill COVID patients. Do you know about that? Can you talk about it for yeah, the show? Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, this, is the, this is one of the wildest medical stories I've ever heard in my lifetime. So there are, the original idea was that the, you know, because of the horrors of COVID, they had to shut down the hospitals to keep the contagion down, which was never true. 
I mean, it, it, it didn't do a thing, uh, but they shut down elective surgery. So in order to, quote, compensate the, doc the hospitals for the revenues lost in elective surgery, they incentivized them for the COVID admissions that were planned, right? And so there is an incentive paid for diagnosing COVID, and they used a test that was too sensitive. In other words, it way overdiagnosed COVID. There was an incentive paid for intubation. There was an incentive paid for giving remdesivir, and there was an incentive paid when the patient died, right? So it's practically unbelievable because every piece of that is a false thing, right? The, the diagnoses were over, it was overdiagnosed and it was used to scare everybody into thinking we had a massive wave of COVID when in fact it was not much of anything uh, and certainly wouldn't have been anything at all had we used the proper drugs that have been, care, have been carefully studied and proven to work. Um, the remdesivir thing, it's a failed Ebola drug that um, kills between 25 and 50% of the people who get it. So it doesn't work and it kills and it was, it was approved as standard of care. I mean, it's it's like, who would have thunk that one? The innovation seems reasonable, and it seemed reasonable to the ICU doctors at first, but then they realized very quickly that this was a different kind of pneumonia, and innovation created many, many, many fatalities. So between all these perks or these, uh, these rewards for the hospitals, um, the hospitals made at least $100,000 and sometimes as much as $500,000 more per COVID patient that was admitted. I mean, just wrap your head around that one. So I interviewed two people who had their relatives murdered in the hospital with the use of these protocols. Both are suing the hospitals. Both, I think, will prevail ultimately because, I mean, their stories are beyond just giving the wrong drug. They, both of them, as far as I could tell, were killed with sedatives. People who were alert and talking, they gave them the sedatives that killed the patient. You know, and I, I'm an expert about this because I ran a surgery center and it's easy to kill someone with sedatives, you know, and they gave three different ones at once. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, it was, it was, a, it was a, like a uh, euthanasia. So, and you guys know how they uh, promote, they're basically trying to tear down the structure in the United States. The United States Constitution is a thing that stands between these guys and world control. So they've, they've sort of ruined some of the uh, right to fair trial and stuff like that, which we've seen in the uh, January 6th defendants. They're promoting uh, racism and social strife uh, through these, uh, you know, and electing false prosecutors. We have one in L.A. County who seems to, who was given money by Soros. I mean, it's, it's just it's it's beyond crazy. They're decriminalizing a lot of stuff. So the the criminals are running into stores and stealing stuff and they, they don't they get released immediately, even if they're caught by the police. Um, the the uh, they are working to forbid gun carry using this this insanity that it uh, that it is uh, the guns and not the 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 SSRI antidepressants that are the problems with the mass shootings. So the the there is no publicity that these mass shooters are on the antidepressants now, and so I mean, fortunately, the Second Amendment seems to be holding up, even if anything, gaining ground. And you can get a concealed carry uh, permit, which helps helps criminals, you know, stability around you. You know, if you're trained and you know what you're doing, there are mistakes made, by, obviously, by concealed carriers. But um, you can go on active self protection at YouTube and understand this issue better. Understand how difficult a time the cops have. Uh, but they're they all have badge cams now. They can't do anything out of line. 
they're they're certainly not slaughtering black people wholesale because they're they're being watched very carefully. So the whole carbon is bad for the earth thing is an exact inversion of reality. It's just crazy. And it's become a religion for many young people. And basically the decrease in energy use that they're advocating, well, Africa is going to starve. They may even be able to make impoverish Europe, but Africa has their energy, the energy, the plentiful fossil fuel energy that we've uh, been given by the technological improvements uh, has allowed Africa to come out of starvation in the last 30 years, roughly. Um, they had a 20, I'm just going to pull these numbers out of the air, but they had a 25% starvation rate uh, 30 years ago. And now it's like 10% or less, and they are doing very well. But if we decrease energy use, um, they are they are absolutely screwed. And the carbon ideas, they're not faulty. They're exactly opposite of the truth. And the idea that there's a consensus about this is absurd. The consensus is among the, the scientists who get their funding from these globalized interests. And I mean, you to get just into the weeds for one minute about this, um, the the global we, we know what the global temperatures and the global CO2 atmospheric levels were for hundreds of millions of years by proxies such as uh, polar ice drilling and there is no relationship between CO2 in the atmosphere and global warming or cooling. If anything, there's a reverse relationship. And the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is so low now in geologic time that it's approaching extinction level, an extinction level event. So at 150, 175 parts per million, uh, all life on earth dies. And there is a certain, there is a lot of people who believe that had we, the industrial revolution not happened and we started using carbon, coal, oil, we would have been extinct by now. Uh, but who knows geologic stuff's and we're at 421 parts per million now, and we could easily survive with 10 times this and mammals have been, have been living on the earth and survived with 10 times this level. And, um, this, this idea that carbon is bad is, is ridiculous. We have ways to protect our uh, exhaust from the coal uh, industry uh, and, uh, you know, the coal uh, uh, power generation. But uh, we're still in America and certainly the rest of the world, we're shutting down uh, plants. We, we, we've, we've branded nuclear power plants as unsafe, but they're actually safer than any other energy production, period. Uh, and, and there's never been a fatality in the entire Western Hemisphere. So uh, we could easily opulently support uh, our water in California. We're at a, we're we're sort of like we were two hundred fifty thousand years ago when the Anastasi died in uh, California due to a drought. We're at that we're at that point now. It's it's not historically unprecedented, uh, but we could easily produce the water we need from the ocean if we used uh, nuclear power. So anyway, sorry, that's the end of the rant. But the answer to your question is, uh, is this agenda overpopulation? That's the clear uh, overriding agenda. They're trying to kill us. That's the story. And these these agendas are all, they're decreasing fertility. They're actually murdering people. They're making people unhappy. And they're trying to starve us. The carbon-based life forms are people. That's what they want to get rid of. What's the end game? I mean, I've heard Elon Musk that he's talked about if you decrease the population, you essentially decrease the number of 
of customers that you have. You have okay. less people. You have less customers. What I mean, what is so? The your end question game? is: is is there any rationality to this? Yeah, what's yeah. the yeah. question? Right. Is there Why a reason for it? Less population. Okay. So like, the answer is that you have to understand what a psychopath is. Their primary thing is not uh, productive, productive uh, uh, activity. It's not even wealth. They, they steal and they lie and they cheat and they, they obtain things through uh, uh, evil means. But their game is hurting and injuring other people. So their primary motivation is not getting wealthier. And no one in the world has ever pr produced an argument that I understand that would say that decreasing the population by four-fifths increases the overall wealth. It's insane. And these people are not going to be as wealthy, even if they are on the top of the, uh, the billionaire uh, platform. So the Great set Reset is designed to destroy all these things. And the goal is economic collapse. And that's their endgame. That's what they want. They want to control. They want everyone to be poor and miserable. I know it sounds crazy. It's absolutely crazy to a normie like you and our, you or I, you two or I. What's what's a way to protect yourself, especially particularly from the healthcare system? You know, like if like I feel like it's if you have a, a ninety two Honda Civic and you take it to the mechanic, they're going to find something wrong with it. You know, like you get to a you know you're fifty years old, you go to the doctor. Of course, they're going to be like, oh, you got high blood pressure, you have high triglycerides. Uh, I mean, you're 50. Like what, I mean, what should, like, what are applicable things that people can do to protect themselves from getting sucked into this dysfunctional healthcare system? First thing is read butchered by healthcare. So you get a feel for what's going on. Um, and there'll be whole parts of healthcare that you'll disregard from then on. For example, the cholesterol myth, um, and the the fact that you you've got a you feel depressed and you think you can treat it with a drug or anxious, the drugs are much worse than nothing, and they interfere with your ability to adjust and adapt to your circumstances and change your life. So th those things are are going to be easy to dismiss. But the real question is is what do you do if you have some sort of serious illness? And the answer is you better freaking do your own homework. And you, if you've got a, a physician or someone who can be your advocate in your interface with the doctors in the system, um, this is very helpful. You almost need physician level expertise to navigate the healthcare system now. And there are plenty of things that really work well. I mean, half of it is super helpful or maybe 40% or whatever you think. Uh, but it's, uh, you, you, if you, if you have a problem, the best index is how you feel. And if you're still feeling sick, you want to get some more consultations. That's that's an easy heuristic, an easy uh, rule of thumb. So the great thing about the modern age is we can get these consultations with other providers from anywhere in the world, as long as the provider agrees to review your record, making you can send them your electronic record and uh, and talk to you for an hour. So you can you can uh, you can study and you can learn and you can go to the experts worldwide and you can find people who still um, have a patient first ethic. And I mean, I hate to point to the major centers as uh, paragons. They're not. But some of the people there, it's astoundingly selective to be a, a Harvard academic in medicine. I mean, they're like a percent of the top people of a percent. And if you go to Johns Hopkins or 
Harvard or Stanford or the Mayo is is very good. Uh, and you consult with these guys for an oddball problem, you may be able to develop a plan of action that will save your backside. And uh, then you can have them write letters to your primary care provider or your oncologist in Louisiana and tell them what to do because the medicines are available everywhere. So that that's, you know, there are encouraging things. And that's, that's one of them is you can consult. The, the healthcare system is such a massive machine and, you know, laden with tons of corruption. If, if one day all of a sudden we woke up and we all understood this, what can we actually do to change it? It's so, it just feels so controlled by the powers that be the people we put in power, like has to control over it. Like what can we actually do to change this system? Okay, or is it possible so answer, or not possible? Yeah. <laughs> you know, look, uh, Eisenhower said that, um, you know, he, he never, he, pessimism, it would never won any battles. So you, you've got to be optimistic. You've got to, you know, especially when you're in your forties, you guys are much more naturally optimistic than I am. Uh, but uh, you, there, there are things you can do. Uh, and the first we have, thing we have to do is somehow break the censors. And you are doing that with your podcast, let's hope. Uh, you may have to, pu- you'll have to publish some of this stuff on Rumble um, or, or BitChute or whatever. Yeah, but, we've um, got to get on Rumble. It's easy. So what, um, what else can you do? I mean, after we break the censors, there's three avenues, right, in, the, in America. And these other countries are totally gone unless we can recover our constitution and our political autonomy. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's, it's late in the game, but uh, we, we do have the courts and we have a Supreme Court that seems to have reached into its panties and discovered that it has balls. So I think that backstopped by the Supreme Court, the courts are, are functional to some degree. Now, just how well we can use our electoral votes and so on, I don't know. I mean, this uh, midterms didn't look very promising. And certainly the Republicans are not any uh, paragons uh, either. But um, we have to do our best to work the, uh, the our, our current system as best we can with the elections, give money to the candidates, um, do our best to, you know, I think Carrie Lake, uh, is, he, she may be able to sue these people who stole the election from her. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I, apparently that's not a very powerful strategy. And I'm not sure she's lost now. I, I think they're still counting the votes. It's obviously fraudulent. Uh, and the thing about it is, is if we have to support the attorneys too, and the children's health defense attorneys, uh, that group, uh, Michael Baum, RFK Jr., uh, are the most prominent uh, heads of it. They have done some effective stuff and they uh, have Fauci slated for a deposition and that was upheld. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it might be possible to do that if all that fails, we still can't start petting a rabid dog and we're going to be left with civil disobedience, which is bloody and discouraging and so on and so forth. But, you know, giving up, once you understand what's going on, giving up is not an option because they'll have us herded into concentration camps and, uh, and all, all death facts and everything else. I mean, it's just, I, you know, anyone in America who isn't worried about this, who thinks this is a spectator sport, had better start looking at what's happening in Canada and worse Australia and Europe. I mean, it's, 
it's astounding. It's very distressing. And these these places do not have a constitution like we have that protects us to some degree. So that's the that's the outline of what we have to do. The first thing is to do your best to spread the word, and you guys are doing that. Yeah, I, I lived in Australia for a year. This is back in 2011. And when I lived there, the wave, you know, where you go to a sporting event and everyone stands up and does the wave, the wave was illegal. If you did the wave, you got arrested, put into jail. And then they made it legal again because they thought it took away from kind of the atmosphere of the game. I mean, Australia's been such a kind of totalitarian dictatorship for years. And then with COVID, it definitely pushed it over the edge. I think most people have this, these visions of Australia, Australians like partying and being free. But when you're in Australia, like it is not free. Like you are living in a, in a, in uh, mother England, as they call it over there. And they're all palmies. You know, palmy is a prisoner of mother England as, as they're known. It's different in different states, as I understand it. I mean, I have friends over there I've podcasted with, and, uh, you know, they, they update me on the <laughs> on every horrible event that happens. Yeah, this is kind of a question for you when you were a cosmetic surgeon for all those years. I feel like, especially in the United States, we kind of have this culture of young, beautiful, healthy, and, you know, when do people have to accept that we're just getting older? Like when you're 60, you should not expect to have the energy that you had when you were 20. And I think that we devalue our elders in this country. We have this ma massive priority or emphasis on young and beautiful. But, and I think a lot of people kind of do it to themselves. They think like they go in, do these annual checkups, like they're like, the fact is, like I said, if you have a 92 Honda Civic versus a 2022 Honda Civic, I mean, they're complete, like you have different expectations. Why do we expect that we should be young and beautiful and healthy our whole life? It's a life cycle. You die at some point, you're born, you go through life and you get older and you eventually die. That's the life cycle, right? Exactly. And I would refer your listeners to books by Norton Hadler. Um, which which are absolutely fabulous, and they 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 gave me kind of a feel for this a uh, little better than I had before, uh, and that's why this uh, transhumanist thing is is irrational. I mean, part of the reason why we may be able to beat these people is their their beliefs are absurd. I mean, this idea that they can live forever is absurd. This idea that they can transfer in a machine with a singularity it's laughable, you know, and. Uh, and they're, they're, some of their ideas have been proven wrong over uh, 100, 100 plus years. You know, the uh, totalitarian stuff, it doesn't work very well. It doesn't create the kind of uh, uh, creativity and uh, production that uh, a more loose society, which can engage the, the, uh, the energies of their people, uh, can do. So I was going to say, I think we're also indoctrinated through, like, you know, movies, television, media, social media, like, Old is bad, young is good. And f I feel like for that culturally to change where we can honor aging and we can, you know, have an acceptance that we're aging so uh, we don't panic uh, uh, about how our body starts to function as we age. I think that's, you know, we, we, it's all also in the media and also understanding that when you watch something, it's probably trying to sell you a product. Um, 
but uh, it has to come from the individual, I feel, to where you have to come to terms that, you know, we can accept uh, our aging gracefully. Like we can love the fact that we're aging. That, that's easy for you to say, Kai, you look like you're 24. You guys told me, you told me your ages, and I thought, no, this is not true. <laughs> 41, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm feeling but, the age right away. I don't move as well. I, you know, I'm very athletic, and I don't move as well as I did in my 20s. And I've, I've had to come to, to peace with that, like, no, I can't deadlift 200, or I can't, you know, I can't surf for eight hours these days. You know, it, it just, um, my body isn't functioning that well, but I would be so depressed if I listened to everybody saying that that was like a bad thing or, you know what I mean? It's just like, I would be depressed if people told me that aging was that like, it, it made it difficult to accept it. You know, because the peace comes from within that, you know, I, I have to just understand that the body is doing what the body is doing. But if I honor my body, and this will kind of be a spiritual conversation, but if I honor my body, it'll do its best to keep me going. That's kind of you where can, I'm at. You can reverse a lot of it or you can prevent a lot of it or you can improve your your responses with those bioidentical hormones over 40 and uh, over 50. And sometimes over 45 for some women lose part of their hormonal response. So you can read about that in my hormone secrets book and, uh, and study that, but you don't need it. You probably don't need it yet. The chances are you've got everything working fine. I think everything's working really well. So, so far, so good. <laughs> so far, so good. That's what the guy said that jumped off the 77th floor when he passed the 33rd floor. But, you know, we, we've got the black swan. We're <laughs> anyway, sorry about that stupid joke. Robert, let's talk about the psychopath test. Okay. What is it and, and um, uh, what is the psychopath test? Okay, so the science, this, this, this verbiage, right? Let define the terms first. The sociopath is the same as a psychopath, only psychopath is the older term that I think is much more appropriate. And um, psychiatry has a bunch of these terms which are very similar which uh, draw distinctions and split hairs that I don't think are reasonable. For example, borderline personality disorder and some others. But the psychopath idea is not that well-defined, but I think it has a lot of merit, especially with what you're, we're seeing now. And there are some uh, popular books. One is Snakes in Suits. And I've got these in my uh, Cassandra's memo, Without Conscience and the Mask of Sanity. Uh, and then there's a, another one, which is a big heavy-duty book, uh, which is published in 1984, called Political Ponerology. The guy's really into verbiage. Uh, but um, one of these authors named Robert Hare uh, published this psychopath test that he, I think he made it up. And it's not, doesn't have a heavy diagnostic value, but if you are, you know, there is a bright line somewhere where you are a psychopath or you're not a psychopath, right? And so if you have a lot of these characteristics, if you have a friend, particularly, who lies all the time, everything he says seems like a lie, you might suspect that he's got uh, some of these characteristics or maybe a full psychopath. So I'll just uh, reel this off. Glibness, superficial charm, grandiose self sense of self-worth, pathological lying, cunning, manipulative, lack of remorse or guilt, shallow affect, callous lack of empathy, 
failure to accept responsibility, need for stimulation, proneness to boredom, parasitic lifestyle, poor behavioral controls, promiscuous sexual behavior. This is Epstein and his uh, other pedophiles. Lack of realistic, realistic long-term goals, impulsivity, irresponsibility, juvenile delinquency, early behavior problems, uh, criminal versatility, and many short-term marital relationships. <clears throat> so these people seem to learn to recognize each other in a crowd, right? Sometimes even in childhood, they become conscious of being different than the people surrounding them. And they almost view the rest of us as a, another species. They, they know about truth, honor, and decency, but they don't think these apply to them. They cheat, routinely break promises and make fun of the non-psychopaths. And we're seeing a lot of that now. We're actually seeing open uh, reviling of the normies. They use fear, lies, and concealment as their weapons. And they, they want to get rich and, pow and be powerful. And they feel like they have a right to them because they can take them. They, they, they do all these, uh, this, this uh, criminal stuff. And they don't have a conscience. They don't feel other pain, people's pain. So um, there seem to be a 1% group on top of the thing who are genetic or complete psychopaths. And they have co-opted another 5% who work closely with them. And there's another 15% who have been damaged by close approximation of the psychopaths or they're intimidated or they're bribed. So it's a pretty, pretty big group of people who are in charge of, uh, of what's going on. So you, you probably understand that corporations are not naturally psychopathic. They're indifferent to human harms. They, they don't mind uh, people being uh, uh, killed or maimed or ruined, but they, that's not their purpose. They, their purpose is to make money. But when there's a psychopath at the top corporations, the corporations become psychopathic. Um, so, so essentially that's the structure um, I always like to give examples of this, uh, these creatures near Hitler. And these were, these are psychopaths at the top of their game. And even though they were originally thugs, um, they were very skilled. They were this, this sort of people, you know, the people in our government and, and the top of our corporations, they probably will never be forensically examined. But Hitler's group were in the Nuremberg trial. Now, these were largely show trials. I think there were only 15 of them were actually put on trial and another 150 or 175 of the downstream people. And the, basically thousands of these people were transported to the United States and were allowed to, um, to uh, get back in the mainstream. But, but, they, um, but the, the lower functional psychopaths do get uh, captured, thrown in the criminal justice system and occasionally executed where they uh, kind of belong. Um, so uh, we, we just have, we have incomplete understanding of the ones that are a little smarter and who don't seem to get caught. Um, so one of the things RFK Jr. pointed out was that um, the academic degrees of compliance scientists and achievements are often supported by psychopaths and they know that their work is monitored and for proper ideology. And this is what has happened to our medical science is it's it's been ruined by the psychopaths who monitor the uh, their minions and rfk jr is the real anthony fauci fauci gives many examples of that i mean it's it's horrifying and fascinating at the same at the same time so i mean these these people are difficult to beat but they're not infallible and they they can be beaten and their their agendas are so irrational that uh, 
you know, it seems like there are attack vectors against them. So I, we have to learn how to spot them and continually speak up. Uh, because if we get Condor used, um, they'll just take another bite out of the apple and pretty soon we'll be walking around in chains. So that's the, uh, that's the story. Do you think that psychopaths are, are born that way? Or do you just think that it's the whole famous expression, which is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? I mean, I, I see it here on the island in Puerto Rico where you see these nice people and your friends them. Then all of a sudden they get a little bit of money or a you know prestigious job, and all of a sudden they just turn into psychopaths. And was that psychopath there the entire time, or was that the result of getting power, fame, and all the thing that comes associated with that? The, the know, answer the yacht. is yeah. The answer but, is but, nobody knows for nobody knows for sure. But uh, we do know that no psychiatric diagnosis has a known genetic genesis, right? No psychiatric diagnosis has a known genetic cause. And so the, the, the psychiatrists treat their patients as if they have physical problems. They give them drugs that alter their physiology. But when we know, when we have never established a genetic cause for any psychiatric diagnosis, these drugs that alter the physiology are completely inappropriate. I mean, they, they have they have a tremendous side effect profile. Now, psychopaths have no chance of ever rehabilitating. And they, you know, if you got them in jail, they will frequently feign cooperation in order to get out. But no one's ever knowingly, knowingly cured a psychopath. And they, the general consensus is that they're not incurable. Um, so the only way to get rid of them is to uh, put them in jail forever or uh, knock them off somehow. So, so nobody knows, uh, you know, and there's certainly, you know, other mental illnesses, quote illnesses, you know, there, there's a uh, dispute about whether these things should be called illnesses like physical illnesses, because there's no laboratory values that establish them. Um, other, Ill, uh, mental, other mental illnesses um, have been, been thought to be uh, genetic and they're treated like they're genetic, but uh, you know, they do seem to respond to caring, talking therapy, and other things. So, and they, they seem to have um, roots in the childhood, you know, childhood abuse and stuff like that. So, so that's, that's an incomplete answer, but I that. think that's all we know. Yeah, I, I think trauma, my guess is trauma probably has something to do with it. Because I think about like, you know, child soldiers or um, even... You know, during World War II, um, you had to join the Reich when you were, uh, a lot of Germans were made to join the Third Reich. And, you know, there were just normal kids. And then all of a sudden they're committing, you know, um, atrocities and, you know, killing and murdering. And I think, uh, I think trauma probably has a lot, a lot to do with that mental illness as well. Or am I... No, no. Uh, that's the theory of one of the people I've had on my podcast, and he's in my book. Um, and uh, yeah, so but we don't know. And but you know what? When you have a fixed problem like this with no cure, I mean, what are you, you going to do? It becomes a moot point. I, I think we could go over um, a couple of points about the COVID and the Vax disaster that might be helpful for your listeners if you've got the time. Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay, so. Um, you know, 
we've been told that masks help. Most of us are aware that they don't help, but most of us aren't aware that masks have been used for slaves throughout history, right? And I've got a chapter about that with lots of photographs of, you know, everything from Guantanamo to Caribbean slaves were forced to wear masks, some of them until they died, you know? So um, this is a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, a compliance uh, thing, you know, it's a compliance symbol, symbol, and there's no rational reason for it. There's no, it has no effect on disease. In fact, there's no good studies that say that surgeons should wear a mask, except to keep the stuff out of their own faces, right? There's no studies that say that the infection rate declines with masks. It's, it's just not a robust finding. I mean, there are probably studies, but it's, uh, it's so that I just wanted to make that point. And the other, the other thing that I think is important uh, in my book is I dissected one set of statistics around the COVID vax. And the question that once people start waking up have for me is what are the chances that this thing is going to kill me? Can I risk taking it in order to keep a job? And essentially that's asking how many chambers are there in the gun that you're pulling and playing Russian roulette with, right? That's the question. And everyone, everyone knows this thing is harmful by now. I mean, every, anyone, anyone who has half a half a brain understands that it is risky. <clears throat> so what are the chances? Now, um, I've got a chapter called The Hot Lots Turn COVID Backs into Russian Roulette, right? That's the, the chapter. And it is not technical. It's easy to understand. And we have data that was harvested off VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Response uh, whatever it is, you know, it's a huge government funded database that records reported vaccine injuries, right? And so what people don't understand, most pe people don't understand is that the vaccines were given to us in lots. Each lot had a serial number. Each lot had thousands of vials, right? So we have a way to track this with VAERS, the VAERS database, and we can track the adverse events in the VAERS database. Now, the VAERS probably is only 10% of the total adverse events, but it's some sort of sample. So we, I have these graphs that were harvested off of a, a YouTube video by one of these brilliant statisticians. And it has, it shows that most of the lots were harmless, or at least showed no distinguishing adverse events or only a few, right? So, but they, and they, on the vertical axis, they presented the number of AEs, adverse events, and on the horizontal axis, it was a timeline. And 90% plus of these vaccines had no, no problems. But the hot lots, the ones that were damaging, created a lot of problems, and they produced numbers that were shown up in the vertical axis, you know, higher on the graph, as uh, a higher number of deaths and horrible problems. Now, the fascinating thing is that um, all three companies cooperated in the release of the hot lots, right? Johnson, Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer, and they cooperated uh, along a many month timeline. And we could track this because we knew which lots were which companies. And Johnson Johnson had a couple little small blips in the adverse reaction uh, data, but Moderna and Pfizer released the majority of these, um, these uh, serial numbered lots that were harmful. Now, Moderna was not as well organized as Pfizer. Pfizer actually seems to have run a clinical death trial 
you know, a clinical study of how much bad material in the vaccine would kill somebody, right? So they have a, a plot that we blew up and it shows a limited range of these adverse events along a timeline. And we were able to plot different doses that they came up with, that they, that they administered for this stuff. And there was a linear effect and they were checking, they were apparently checking the amount of uh, poison that would kill you. You get it? Or give you, make you very sick. And you, you guys have to turn to this chapter in the book to really understand what I'm saying. But it's it's easy to understand. I spent 20 hours re-editing this chapter to make it as simple as possible. And uh, and basically, uh, these, these companies conspired under jo joint direction to plan and execute another Holocaust. And um, I mean, it's, it's horrible beyond belief when you understand that this was a death trial in the United States and that they spread these lots throughout all of the states. They didn't put them all, they didn't put the hot lots in one state or one area, because then we would able, be able to see that multiple deaths were occurring in this one area and, and identify it. They spread them, every lot was spread throughout all 50 states. Every lot was spread throughout all 50 states. And the reason why they did this is these companies had had experience getting identified before when they put all the bad vaccines in one place. There was an area in Tennessee that had like 10 or 15 little kids die. And so ever, ever after, they, they took their lots and spread them out through all their states. So, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable scene. And I don't know how anyone, after looking at this chapter, which is only a thousand words long, Anyone, after looking at this chapter, could ever trust a vaccine of any kind, particularly one containing messenger RNA, such as the new flu vaccines. And I don't know how they could trust any product made by Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, or Moderna ever again. And it's horrible. Well, what do you say to, you know, you have people that call people that didn't take the vaccine anti-vaxxers, and it's really a slur. I mean, what do you say mm -hmm. to to those people I think more and more people are waking up as they're seeing the the fact that we're on the fifth the fifth dose now, right? Back a couple of years ago, it's like, oh, the vaccine will stop the spread. Then there was the booster; it'll stop the spread. And then there was a third booster, and it just never stopped the spread. And now people are like, well, fool me once, you know, shame on you. That whole expression. I mean, what do you? But what do you say to people that still are like, "Oh yeah, get the booster, get the vaccine," or are you just not even able to have a conversation with those people because they are so close-minded, or they're unable to see past their political affiliation? You know, I I've lost many things with this, and one of the things I lost was my friends who turned into wretched COVIDians. And these people, they're, they've been so influenced by the media and the propaganda that they're unable to think rationally. And it's not, it's not a pure intellect thing. At first, I thought, well, maybe these are total idiots who can't understand it. But the information sources have been ruined. And I, I'm going to make the point that we made prior in this podcast was, was that, um, you know, this anti-vax thing is a nice marker for what is probably true, right? So you see, you hear that, you hear fact check, you hear um, these other... Uh, these other verbiages that are used and you uh, conspiracy theory, you think, well, this is probably true. I should look at this. So, I mean, I don't have any, uh, any uh, miracle that I, I use to uh, convince people. I mean, that RFK's book convinced a couple of my friends, but I mean, 
a lot of them are holding on to their beliefs. And even though the whole thing has become apparent, I don't think a lot of them are going to take another vaccine. And supposedly the vaccine, quote, penetrance, unquote, for childhood vaccines has gone down by a third. And as well, it should. I mean, no one should ever use any of those things ever again. I mean, they've got a, the autism rate alone is an outrage. It's an outrage. And the causal connection is, seems obvious to me. And it certainly, certainly will, I think it will seem obvious to you if you see those movies on the Children's Health Defense website. And on, I, I have the very bright academics uh, uh, turning in their opinions on, in, in my uh, Cassandra's memo book, you know, in, under the back section. So you can, you can read those. What do you think just about how medical doctors are trained? I mean, you get these doctors that go to what, 12 years of school, plus you have your, your internship period, which is very low paying. So they come out of school heavily indebted. And then they basically just turn into pill pushers. I mean, most people would call them a drug dealer, but because it's a prescription pill, it's called a, you know, a prescription. But the fact is that a lot of these people, they don't want to be open to this because they have 200000 in debt. They're not really taught anything about nutrition or about how health and fitness and lifestyle, getting sun, just having hobbies factor into a healthy lifestyle. And these doctors are all complicit in this partially because they are uneducated, even though they technically have 12 years of education, formal education, and partially because their livelihood depends on them pushing these products. It seems like the whole medical establishment from the actual educational standpoint is incredibly faulty. Yeah, that's, that's all true. Um, you know, you have to realize that this is the most, this is the most intellectual and best trained group in America, large group. There are a million doctors and their average IQ is something around 130, which is almost two standard deviations above the mean. The lawyers are only 115. So they're not anywhere near as elite. The, the sharpest lawyers are, of course, as sharp as anyone. But um, the, these guys have, I, I'm sympathetic towards them. I, I'm I, I'm very disappointed in what's happened, but I'm sympathetic towards individual doctors. And I understand where they're coming from because practicing medicine is incredibly consuming. I mean, they don't have time with the new medical records requirements. They don't have time to wipe their nose, let alone read anything. And many of them are reduced to getting their information from sources like the drug reps. And, you know, the drug reps, always they're always good looking and they're always uh, there and they're, uh, they're around and they help. You know they help you make money so um i mean it's it's a, it's a sad scene when we managed to take a group that was one of the most independent thinking groups in america and turn them into into drones and they're almost all these people now work for uh, in in my early days there must have been three quarters of us who were working in individual practices or small groups now they're working for huge groups and the they have protocols about what they need to do and sometimes they're monitored by computer if you don't prescribe your primary care you don't prescribe enough statins you get censured and possibly fired i mean for example i mean it's just it's just nuts and uh you know sometimes the plaintiff's lawyers are the only limits on these people the uh you know, I, I, I'm sympathetic because they, they just they don't have time. They're not they're trained to be compliant with um, they're trained to be compliant with uh, 
protocols and so on. And now the protocols are all dictated by industry. They're dictated, they're dictated by doctors who are heavily paid by industry uh, who are on uh, standards panels. And the standards panels, uh, uh, you know, make up these standards that are that are all about selling drugs. And uh, the psych industry is a classic because their standards are in the DSM. DSM is this yellow diagnostic and statistical manual is this yellow thing that mutates and morphs every few years by a vote of the American Psychiatric Association. I mean, it's it's crazy. And this thing, they, they split hairs. They make up these diagnoses. They all require, you know, most of them require drugs. And the, the, the guys that are on the, on the panel that may make the whole thing up, they're, they're, far, they're shills for, for these. And they probably don't even consider themselves shills. They just feel like they've, they've got some extra in, income streams in their practice. And they can't make any money unless they prescribe all those drugs. It's not profitable to sit and do psychoanalysis on anyone. And that stuff's pretty corrupt, too. I have, I have uh, references about that in Cassandra's memo. So, That's I mean, it's, it's a sad scene, Kai. That's crazy. I just don't know why we allow an incentive system like this. That it's just so backwards. It doesn't help the patient. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm a little bit like confused. I, I, I'm trying to be optimistic, but after this conversation, it just kind of seems a little bit more uh, like doomy. You know, it's just such a big, big tree, and a lot of people even if they know it's like, what can we do? Like we can do this, but you know, money is so powerful and you know, it's just like, I don't really know what one can do to, to change such a massive system of corruption. It's sad. Well, I want to cry. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. It's, it, it's overwhelming. And let me tell you, I didn't know any of this stuff two years ago, maybe even 18 months ago. And I, it's been, I have had to burn down my illusions one by one over that time period. And it's been a painful, painful process. But it, it, your first job is to learn everything you can. And your second job is to realize that you, you have no choice but to fight. There's, there's no other way forward because if we don't fight, uh, we're just going to be healed. We're going to be herded into killing jars. I mean, that's, that's how crazy the thing has gotten. Um, so, I, I, I know it sounds apocalyptic and I, I may sound like it's it may sound like it's extreme, but I, I want you, your listeners to download that uh, copy of Cassandra's memo and uh, have a look at it. And I'm actually typesetting a new version that I've edited, re-edited. And if you will just take that link, put it in your put it in your uh, uh, storage and download it after another 24 hours, you'll get the latest. OK, yeah, we'll put it in the description and uh, I think we'll be publishing this more towards next week that's good so by then be, it will you'll be, have time yeah yeah by then it'll, it'll be the new new mm -hmm. version you know we've we've had you robert for two hours on here so let's you know what are some parting thoughts what's like a message that people should take home what's the take-home message of this entire podcast what's the summary what's the thing that people should know i mean you have three books you got butchered about healthcare you have the hormone secrets and then you have Cassandra's memo. What is the, Oh, I mean, that's a lot of knowledge. You're definitely all, passionate right. about bringing yeah. it on. Yeah. It's a lot of passion right there, but what is the message? I mean, what should people take home? If they had one message only they're taken away from this podcast, 
right no, now, I, at least I, to get I'll, them started. I'll, I'll give you a few. Okay, so if you're over 45, you might even start with hormone secrets because that can help you personally be more healthy. Um, if you have medical problems or, or are involved with the healthcare system in any way, uh, read Butchered by Healthcare. Um, my advice that I gave in the conclusion of my Cassandra's memo is to make preparations, learn as fast as you can, and attach yourself to mentors. And once you understand all this stuff, and it's going to be agonizing to get it, you have no choice but to act. And you have to spread the word so everyone will know the enemy. It's not, it, none of this has been easy for me. When your life is on the line, you think nothing of working hard. And I discovered I can still get knowledge through a fire hose. And I mean, there's a, there's a quote about uh, when you, you know you're going to be hung in the morning, um, there's nothing motivates a man so much as the uh, knowledge that he's going to be hung in the morning. And we're, we're in trouble as a nation, as a world. And so I've been writing, speaking, and studying eight or more hours a day, nearly seven days a week. And so I think that you need to model, and there are models available. RFK Jr. is the most prominent one. Mercola is very good, and he produces more valuable content than anyone else. So you need to listen to him and read two-thirds of what he writes. I read it in, their, in, in its entirety in their daily. Um, RFK said he was trained in his youth to believe there would be a time when he'd be called upon to make a significant contribution. And so that's what he's doing now. And he says he faces the bad guys individually instead of considering the whole evil scene. And he doesn't try to predict the future. So we can't, we can't get discouraged. Um, Peter Bregan is very good too. He's 86, but uh, he's, he's still on the horse. And you can look at him at Bregan.com, B-R-E-G-G-I-N. He's the one that kicked me in the head hard enough that I got on this path. Um, and there's other ones on Substack.com. Get on Substack. Uh, you can start reading. Um, I mean, I recommend the second smartest guy in the world uh, one, which seems to be a consortium of British uh, authors. So, I mean, it's one of the things that I'm kind of concerned is that it seems that most of the people that have kind of spoken out about this are retired. I mean, yourself's retired. You have Dr. Uh, Robert Malone, who's also retired. I mean, you have Dr. Uh, Patrick Moore in terms of the climate change, who's retired. These people are not going to be, you know, kind of canceled. And so they are able to speak out. I mean, what do you say to people that actually are working in the industry? I mean, if, if some of these professionals don't actually kind of maintain the status quo, will they just be canned or, I mean, how do they, cause you have to also, balance. Also, live, by the way, yeah. a lot of the younger influencers won't touch this stuff in their platforms. They don't want to talk about it because they'll, get canceled or lose their uh their uh, lose audience so well the people under 30 are one of the great disappointments and we've we've allowed them to be trained by the conspiracy and so they frequently have they maintain many irrational ideas they have a very difficult time my much more difficult the time than i had coming to this i never watched tv and I didn't have much background in a lot of this. So I was able to assimilate it and it was still painful. Um, you know, if you're in the profession, if you're a, a medical doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're in the tech industry, I mean, how do you go about your daily life? Because you still need to make a paycheck, right? You still got to right. pay your bills. But how do you balance between not being sucked into this system that corrupts? Okay. So how first you, of all, right. the, fir the first answer is, 
that if they're coercing you to take the vaccine, you have a, a hard binary. And that is, do you want to commit suicide or do you want to live? So you've got to you've got to go from there. And you, you have to read that chapter and understand that, you know, a one in 200 risk of death or serious harm is very similar to a major surgical risk. It's similar to one of the highest risk surgical procedures, which is that stomach alteration operation for the overweight people. Um, you know, there are other surgeries that have one in a thousand risk, but, uh, you know, even something like an appendectomy is probably one in a thousand death. Um, so this thing is much, much more dangerous than that. You have got to quit and do something else. Uh, but it, it, short of that, um, you're going to have to make your decisions about whether you're going to stick with the industry. I mean, I've got some other optimistic threads that may be uh, helpful for your your listeners to uh, just not be so not get so blackpilled about this episode. My theory, which is not substantiated by much, is that supply and demand will trump all the billionaires in the world. And I cannot believe that when people are starving in well-educated Europe or they're, they're not getting their heating oil, that things won't change. So I also see daily, I walk around, you know, blue collar America here in LA, and I see this almost infinite well of strength, expertise, integrity, and advancements. And I meet people who work at Costco who were managers of Walmart at one time who are on their way back. You know, they got involved with drugs or something and they're on, on their way back. So um, the other thing is that a lot of the people who are playing along with the agenda seem to be acting and retain their core values, self-interest and primary focus on their families. And the, the propaganda and the cultural destruction they face are hard to ignore, but they do ignore it. And immigrants are some of our best, and they may be our future because they understand our hope better than we do because they live in places that were not so nice. So um, we've got uh, we've got warriors that are making progress, um, and you know, including RFK and uh, his his groups, and uh, you know, we've got other uh, lawyers that I talk about on, on my uh, Substacks and so on that are. That are uh, that are making progress. So it's not entirely a uh, pessimistic scene, and but you have to understand that you, you you have to do it. You have got to learn, and that's your first step: is learn as much as you can. Yeah, this is this is my first step. I'm I'm opening up my eyes. I'd say, like really hardcore in the last year for sure. How do you you know you're supposed to be retired? You know how come you're not just like <laughs> sipping pina coladas on the beach? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of my cohorts are bored and I'm certainly not bored, but I'm driven, not I'm my motivation is my children and I'm hoping that they will uh, will do OK. And they've they've done great so far, but uh, they, you know, and I'm I'm angry. So I, yeah. I don't feel like I have a choice. You know, I don't yeah. feel like I have a choice. And I I feel like if I don't step up. Who the freaking heck will? You, you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I'm I, at the age where I don't have much to lose. And I mean, the, I, I have a lot of friends who are my age who are who understand what's going on, who've gotten all my memos, but they're they they are not getting involved. They won't even give money to political candidates. So, uh, you know, some some of them are really wealthy. Yeah, it's just it's just I think a lot what a lot of people find is that, you know, you let's say you don't take the vaccine well you have a lot of rights like get taken away like you can't travel you can't go to certain parts of the world um you know things of that nature and that's just like uh 
you know, I think at one point in time they were talking about, um, you know, making sure everybody's got a, a vax card and everything's kind of digitized. So I'm not sure if that's even going to happen where it's on your passport or your yeah, they're ID. trying to do it all with the excuse of global warming and uh, and uh, you yeah. know the CBDC and all that stuff. So yeah, it's, let me tell you, these people have not quit. I... We we're in a little uh, uh, eye of the hurricane here where there is not as much control, but uh, uh, it, it just it, things things you can't be sanguine about uh, current events. It's just a it's not gonna it's not gonna it's not realistic. Well, I pray for. <laughs> Uh, a better world. I have to stay optimistic, like you said, because then uh, I feel like, you know, we'll, we'll get really unhealthy if we're not. <laughs> Our body starts to, I feel like when I'm stressed out, like, you know, this, I, my body just starts to slows down even more. So, um, but, uh, but um, I'm very grateful. I've, I've got so much to process so far, unless uh, Jesse, you have any other questions or final thoughts, but um you have unloaded a tremendous amount of knowledge <laughs> that we have to process and we're very grateful. Um, uh, again, we, we chopped this up into like little mini sound bites. That's kind of easier to digest because there's so much, you know, in this one kind of two hour, uh, one, uh, sorry, two hour episode. Um, but, uh, uh, that's it for me. Unless, uh, I guess we, we could close the, the podcast. Um, here, yeah, Jesse, let's close know? it. No, I think I think we covered a lot of stuff. I <laughs> yeah. think we're all tired and we've let's, squeezed you. We've squeezed, we've uh, squeezed Robert out. The, of- <laughs> I think we can definitely Sorry. have another part two at some point for sure. There's oh, so yeah. much more to we talk gotta, about. But are you working on a, a new book and or uh, could you? No, do I'm you still. Have like at, a- I've I spent the last two months just full time, more than full time, re editing this thing in, in between oh, a few podcasts. Yeah. 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 Very so it's cool. gotten better. I, I've i gotten, you know, I sent the whole thing free out to my 5,000 people and about oh, great. 400 of them downloaded it. And I got suggestions from 30 and they were, they are super helpful. Any kind of suggestion is helpful in a book authorship and it, it helps me perceive things. And I had this editor from the Netherlands who was just the nastiest bee you've ever seen. I never met her. I only communicated with email. And she must have spent 200 hours editing Butchered by Healthcare. She really helped it. Uh, but her modus was to abuse me like a stepson. I mean, it was really funny. And not until the very end did she develop any respect for me uh, personally or the project. She almost turned me on to the AIDS fiasco. Uh, and she tried to get me to read about that. But I absolutely dug in my heels about that. I didn't want to write about that, which I learned about with the RFK book. Yeah, that was one of the more fascinating chapters in the RFK book. And it's just yeah. shocking to think that Anthony Fauci is still in still you know, at it. In the same position basically what 30, 30, 40 years later. There's one point in time I was thinking that okay, this guy is his core competency is creating pandemics. So I guess if he's he's so good at it that he keeps going. You know, it's just like, it's bizarre. Like you have to be such a mastermind to, to come up with something like this that affects billions and billions of people and so think that you're doing the traits, right thing. That's psychopathic it. traits are adaptive in, 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 in positions of leadership, which you wouldn't think it would work, but uh, you think that they'd get re- weeded out. But I, I knew some in medical school and they got through. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Robert. 
and for joining us today and uh, immersing us with an immense amount of your research uh, in your books. Um, is there a, a place where people can find you? Uh, do you have a website or, or anything that you want to uh, promote where people can go? Or, or do you want us to just publish the, the link to the, uh, the book? Thank you, Kai. The link to the book will have everything in it. If they download that, they go to a free download site and it'll pop the thing, a PDF or, uh, or even a, uh, uh, you know, an ebook they can put on Amazon, uh, on Kindle. Uh, but I have two websites. One is robertyoho.substack.com, robertyoho, R-O-B-E-R-T-Y-O-H-O dot substack.com. And they should subscribe to me there if they, uh, if they don't download the book. If they download the book, they get automatically subscribed. You can always get rid of me by going down to the bottom and clicking the unsubscribe. That's not a problem. Uh, and then the other one is uh, robertyohoauthor.com, robertyohoauthor.com. Okay, wonderful. So, everyone, we will have all these links in the description of the YouTube video. So if you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, go on ahead and find us on YouTube. Uh, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And also, if you gained any value from this podcast, please consider hitting that like button. Uh, it does help us out in the algorithm. And uh, yeah, there's so much to process. I feel like my my brain is uh, exploding. Um, trying not to trying not to be angry, you know, trying not to be affected, but yet like trying to take steps towards like things that we can do to help and and break the silence, like uh, like you said. So thank you so much, um, Robert. Once again, I hope you'll come again for another podcast. Thanks, guy. It was a pleasure. <laughs>